with the Lord's help, I have been preparing this week in order to read from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 38 to 50. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to hear, see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the valley of the huge fish three times, three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's proclamation and look something greater than Jonah is here. This, the Queen of the South will ride up, rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and look something greater than John Solomon is here. When an unclean spirit comes out of a man, it roams through waterless places looking for rest, but cannot find any. Then it says, I'll go back to my house that I came from, and Returning, it come it finds the house vacant, swept, and steady put on or in order. Then off it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil evil than itself, and they enter and settle there, settle down there. As a result, that man's last condition, condition is worse than the first. That's how it will also be 
with this generation, this e evil generation. He was still speaking to the crowds when suddenly his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. Someone called, told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. But he replied to the one who called him, who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching, stretching out of his, out his hand toward his disciples, he said, "Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the the will of my Father in heaven, that person." is my brother and sister and mother. Hi everyone. Um, on the 25th of January in 2015, uh, I stood um, up in front of our church and preached uh, my first sermon here at TAC now. I just joined the team as the family's minister, uh, kind of job involved looking after all the kids programs, but also having a voice into kind of the church uh, community at large um, through Bible teaching and so on. Now, I came in as what they call the family's minister, but there's always a bit of a danger um, in, in that title, in being called the family's minister. There's a danger in labelling anything at church, you know, family, um, family events or family services, those kind of things. Now, what's the danger? The danger is that we can, as a church, present the image that, 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 in, that family means a mum, dad, a couple of kids, that's it. Um, and the danger is that uh, is we present that's the only way things can be and that can put barriers between uh, for anyone that, that doesn't fit that mould for whatever reason, right? Now, maybe your family does fit that family mould. Uh, more, like, more than likely, it doesn't. Uh, lots of people have different shaped families. But for, for us, for me and you, we really want our church community to be somewhere uh, where, where someone in any life stage or situation and background is equal, is honoured, uh, is a valued um, member. Now, I know we haven't always got this right, but it's what we want to keep uh, working at, working at together. So we tend to avoid the language of family, all right? Well, morning church isn't family church, it's just church at the time of the day when it makes most sense to run kids' programs, right? We don't want to cause barriers with family language. But you'll notice, right, that we haven't actually ditched the language of family because there's some a deep theological truth and a beautiful truth in there. The truth is that together as church, uh, we are family. You know, if you know our vision statement or have heard it, we know, you'll notice we've kept that language, right? We want to be an ever-growing, diverse church family. Uh, family is one of the great images that God's given us through the scriptures as a way of thinking about ourselves uh, together. Um, a, a body, the body of Christ, with Christ as the head, um, a building with Christ as the cornerstone, um, a nation with Christ as the king, and a family with God our Father, Jesus our brother. 
In my first sermon here, I didn't preach on today's passage, but I did come to it as I thought about kind of the family reframed, right? Because here we get the beautiful truth from Jesus' lips. He says this, he says, Who is my mother and my brothers? Stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Over the last three weeks, we've looked at um, gospel grace. Uh, we, we started with that absolute beauty of the call of Jesus to us, um, though we don't deserve it. Jesus, the, the great doctor who came to heal the sick and those who know they are sick. Uh, we are the poor, we are the lowly. But as we looked at last week, uh, we can also claim an amazing greatness, gospel greatness. Uh, those who see Jesus for who he is, those who are in his kingdom, those who are the least in his kingdom, uh, they have a greatness, this greatness that comes from being with Jesus. And this, in the final week of this series, I want to remind us what this relationship is, this relationship that we have with um, Jesus and each other, who we are as church. Now, the word church, you might know, comes from the word for gathering. Who are we as we gather together? What is gospel gathering? It's a gathering as a family around Jesus. As we gather, we gather as family, we gather around Jesus. Gospel grace, gospel greatness today, gospel gathering. Now, if you have your Bible open, I'm going to be focusing mainly on the last um, section we had read, kind of from verse uh, 46 onwards. It's the bit where um, Jesus' biological family kind of approaches him and, and wants to talk to him. But if you're listening, we had that first bit we had read, we saw another group of people approaching Jesus. And they come to Jesus uh, with a demand. They come to Jesus with a challenge. They, they come to take from him, to, to, to see, to have Jesus prove himself to them. The Pharisees come and demand a sign from Jesus. Give us a sign. Show us who you are. And Jesus says, basically, look, I will give you a sign, but you won't see it for what it is. You can't see it. You can't see what's before your very eyes. You can't see me. As he rebukes them, he gives them a little history lesson and he reminds them of uh, back the, the Ninevites, the enemies of God's people, how they, uh, they could even recognize God's word through the prophet Jonah. He reminds the Pharisees of the Queen of Sheba way back who recognized the greatness of God's King Solomon. But Pharisees, Jesus says, you can't see me for who I am. You can't see me for who I am, even though I'm a greater prophet than Jonah, even though I'm a greater king uh, than Solomon. As a generation, your hearts are evil, they're empty, you can't see me. Now, we could talk a long time about those verses, I wanted to skim through them, but I just want us to notice uh, the way that the Pharisees approach Jesus. Prove yourself to us. Show us a sign. What makes you so good? We will be the judges of your claims to greatness. The Pharisees come demanding and they're left outside. The Pharisees come to Jesus demanding and they're left outside. Then there in verse 46, as he's teaching, another group comes to call on Jesus. Who is it? It's his, it's his mother, Mary, his brothers. We know James. There are others as well. And they, they called him. They send a message to him and say, come out here. We want to talk to you. Come out here. We want to talk to you. Now, fair enough. First century Israel, family's a pretty big deal. Family has a claim on you. Even if you're in the middle of teaching, it's probably a pretty reasonable request. Come out and talk to us. They stand on the outside calling Jesus to come out to them. 
Now, we're in, in Matthew, the book of Matthew, but when Mark tells the same story, he kind of makes the point that the family's actually there uh, because they think that Jesus is, is out of his mind, has gone a bit crazy. They're kind of calling him out so they can, you know, take care of him, to call him home, bring him home. Um, the, the whole teaching prophet thing, I think, is just getting, going too far. Um, it's reflecting badly on the family. It's time to give it up, Jesus. Uh, so they, they come with judgment. They come in judgment on Jesus, expecting him to fall in line with them. Now, Matthew tells the story as we had it read. He doesn't make a big point of, of, of that. What he shows is the contrast between the family who are on the outside, who want to speak, compared to those who are on the inside and want to listen. Matthew compares those on the outside with demands and those on the inside ready to receive. Verse 48 again. He replied, so Jesus replied to the one who was speaking to him, Who are my mother and who are my brothers? Who are my mother? Who are my brothers? Hang on. Wait a second, Jesus. What what do you mean? Who are my mother and my brothers? They're outside, obviously. It's a bit offensive to kind of say that. Who are they? No, No, Jesus says, no, they actually aren't truly my mother and my brothers. Verse 49. Stretching out his hands towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is a really double-edged sort of a statement. It just kind of sinks some deep truths in in one go. Because, yeah, on one hand, it would come across pretty disrespectful to his family, especially that kind of family-driven culture. But on the other hand, because family is so important in in that culture, he's making an extraordinary claim about those who are sitting around him, about those who are listening to him. Now, today, people kind of flippantly use the word family or fam, you know, and talking about their close friends. And it's, it's lovely. It's a nice expression of, uh, of care. But for Jesus, this isn't flippant. This isn't, isn't my fam. It's not, it's not what he's saying. He knows how controversial his words are. He knows how deep they cut because family is important. And, and what he's trying to say is super important. You who are listening, you're not my students, you're not my fans, not even simply my disciples, you're family. You're in my family. Jesus reframes the concept of family right there and then. I mean, families appear all through the scriptures. You look through the the broken histories of families. We have been looking as we look at the stories of of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We've seen the broken family, but, but here we get to the point where the idea of family is fulfilled. Here, my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And being in a family comes with great privilege. Being in a family comes with great responsibility too. And we're going to come back to that a little bit in a moment. But it is worth saying as we go through that Jesus is not kind of abolishing the importance of family. He's not saying family doesn't matter. And we, we see Jesus taking care of his family. Even on the cross, he takes responsibility for the care of his mother after he's gone. And we know about Jesus' family. We know that we have the joy of knowing that many in his family came to see him for who he really is. We know his brother James ends up leading a chunk of the church. He writes a bit of the Bible that we have. But for now, what we see is them on the outside, the family on the outside, not coming in, not listening to Jesus, calling him out to, to them to come out on their terms. They don't see Jesus for who he is, not yet. They don't come to him as they should. They miss out at this stage on this amazing privilege it is to be in Jesus' true family, to be in the family 
of God. It's a bit like last week, right? John the Baptist, um, the, the, uh, the greatest of all the prophets, the greatest man to ever live, Jesus says. But compared to those in the kingdom of God, well, they are much greater even than him. And here, to be in the physical family of Jesus, what a privilege, what an amazing thing. How can you get closer to him? Well, they are out, others are in. They are staying outside, others are inside. What is truly needed is to be in the family of God. But how do you do that? How do you get into the family of God? How do you, how do you get there? What does Jesus say? I'll read it again. Here are my mother and my brothers. Listen, for whoever does the will of my father is my brother and sister and mother. Okay, so it's whoever does the will of the father is Jesus' brother and sister and mother. It's, that's how you get in his family. And then the question is raised, well, what's the will of the Father? What does God want me to do? And then you might start in your head collecting all the different um, practical teaching from the Scriptures and saying, am I doing this? Am I doing that? Am I doing the will of the Father? Am I okay to get into this family of Jesus? What have I missed? What, what do I need to know or, or do? How do I know that I'm in or out? But if you dive along this kind of rabbit hole in your mind, that's actually, you're missing the point, right? Um, two weeks ago, we spoke about gospel grace, how God chooses and calls the unlovely and brings them in, the undeserving. You'd ask the question, did Matthew, the tax collector, do the will of the Father in heaven before he could be called into fellowship with Jesus? Was he doing enough stuff? Was it his, his works that got him in? No, no, it was a gift then, and a gift of grace. So it's a mistake to hear the words, uh, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, and then kind of start to see if you measure up to that, if you're in or not, depending on what you do. What is the will of the Father? Well, I don't think it's that complicated. I think we see the will of the Father right here in this passage. We see it in action. I'll read it again. Listen, verse 49, stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Here they are. They are. They are it. He points to those who are sitting at his feet, listening to him, those following him, those gathered around him, those who've come to receive from him and not demand of him, those who've come to listen and not direct. These ones are doing the will of the Father. To be around Jesus, to listen, to love. That's his true family right there. Now before, when I, when I talked about doing the will of the Father, your, maybe your mind went to those things you need to do or not do, the ways you do or don't measure up. Was that you? Or did your mind come here and realize you need to sit at the feet of Jesus? I think it's an urge we all have all the time. What's the standard I got to hit? What do I need to do? How have I failed? How can I do better? How good am I that I didn't stuff up? We think so fast about ourselves and our performance and how it reflects on us. That's one of the problems. We think too much about ourselves. I think the same problem for the Pharisees. I think they come to Jesus in an attacking way because they were worried about themselves. They felt threatened by Jesus. They could see their authority and their power and respect from the community draining away. They were thinking of themselves. Um, Jesus' mother and brothers come to Jesus worried about their family, worried about their family reputation. They're feeling the shame of having this crackpot son. They're worried about themselves and don't come and sit at the feet of Jesus. We worry about ourselves. We think about our own shame. We think about our reputation before others. We think of our cynicism, our independence. And all this kind of leads us to hold Jesus at arm's length, to make demands, 
to ask him to prove himself to us. Our worries about ourselves mean that we don't want to come to him, that we are ashamed. We haven't sorted ourselves out enough yet. But Jesus calls us to do the will of the Father. What's the will of the Father? To sit, to listen, to submit. The sick need the doctor and he is it. And for those of us who gather around him, that makes us family. That makes us family. And here's the thing about family. You don't do something to get to be part of a family. You just are. You don't do something to get into the family. It's all done for you. I've been reading about this in a book that my growth group gave me as a farewell present. It's called uh, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by a guy called Dane Ortland. And in one chapter, he raises this idea of us being in God's family. The problem, he says, is that we operate with hearts driven by laws and we forget the lavishness of God's love, his heart for us. Lawish hearts instead of God's lavish heart. And the problem is we live our lives trying to get into a family, living towards a family, rather than seeing that we are in the family and living as a result of that, living from that, having lives shaped by, by that. Here is what he says. There are two ways to live the Christian life. You can live it either for the heart of Christ or from the heart of Christ. You can live for the smile of God or from it, for on your identity as a son or a daughter of God or from it, for your union with Christ or from it. The battle of the Christian life is to bring your own heart into alignment with Christ's. That is, getting up each morning and replacing your natural orphan mindset with a mindset of full and free adoption into the family of God through the work of Christ, your older brother, who loved you and gave himself for you out of the overflowing fullness of his gracious heart. Ortland goes on to tell a fictitious story of a 12-year-old boy who's in a loving, stable family who suddenly kind of wonders if he can be um, sure of his place in the family. Uh, he makes himself uh, a new birth certificate for himself, just to be, just to be sure. And then he starts taking on all sorts of chores around the house to, to make sure that he's worthy of being there. And eventually he starts trying to imitate his father in every, in every kind of aspect. I'll read again. One day his parents question this strange behavior. The son says, I'm just doing all I can to secure my place in the family, guys. How would the father respond? Calm yourself, my dear son. There's nothing you could possibly do to earn your place among us. You are our son. You didn't do anything at the start to get into our family and you can't do anything now to get out of your, our family. Live your life knowing that your sonship is settled and irreversible. Your sonship, your daughtership is settled and irreversible. Is your heart bound up with rules trying to get into a family? Or is it secure knowing that Jesus has, has done that? Has, and then does your life flow out of that truth and that knowledge? What's true for you? What do you think is true for our church? As we gather, it's a gospel gathering. It's a gospel gathering because we gather around Jesus. We listen to him. We're part of the family so that we can live in response to that. 
We live lives shaped by the grace of Jesus. Live lives that worship God wholeheartedly, that love each other deeply. Lives that then can serve our community boldly. As we gather around Jesus, he reaches out towards us and says, Here, here my mother and my brothers and my sisters. For whoever does the will of the Father is my brother and sister and mother. Gospel gathering is gathering around Jesus. And the more I've thought about it, the more I'm just convinced that Jesus is always the answer, right? Now, it sounds a bit like a a trite Sunday school answer, but it's true. The answer is never really um, simply do more or do better or stop it. The answer's got to be Jesus. Jesus is the answer to our idols, the answers to our sin, the answer to our heartache, the answer to our loneliness. Real and lasting change is gospel-driven grace transformation. How do we, how do we, how does this come about? Well, we've got to see for ourselves what it is taking the place of God in our hearts, our lives. What's the lie that we're believing about, about God? Are we doubting God's power and his love for us? Are we doubting that God wants best for us? What lie are we believing? And how does Jesus deal with that lie? How is he the answer? How does Jesus put that lie to death on the cross? couple examples. We've done this before, but it's worth doing again. Uh, has money become your idol? Are you believing that God doesn't want what's best for you, so you don't need, so you need to get it for yourself, you need to grasp for it yourself? Is that the lie that you're believing? Well, the answer is Jesus. And we look at Jesus and see Jesus on the cross, the one who left power and wealth and, and um, he lived through poverty, had everything taken from him, even his clothes, even his life. Why? So that you can have the privilege of being a son or daughter of the King of Kings and the riches and wealth that come with that. Maybe this strange era has made uh, health and safety an idol for you. Maybe you're crippled with fear and worry about what might happen. Maybe you're believing the lie that God doesn't care about you and is not powerful enough to look after you. What's the answer? Well, always Jesus. And we look at Jesus on the cross and we see the one who gave up health and security and safety so that you can be carried through this life. You might not escape sickness and suffering, but you can be carried even through the depths of illness and pain and carried through into eternal life, eternal rest where there's no more disease or death or suffering or pain or tears. The answer is always Jesus. That's why we gather around him. As individuals, as a households, as households, as a church, we sit at his feet. Friends, there's so much we can say about this, about how being brought into God's family um, brings us amazing privilege and also brings us responsibility. Um, the church, because it's a family, we have responsibility for each other. We could talk about the messiness of family life, which is the same for our little families, same for our church family. There's lots to say. I don't have time to go in there. I just want to encourage you to remember the gospel unity you have as the family of Jesus. Despite your diversity in every kind of way, you are united around Jesus Christ. And so my prayer for you is that your your family affection will grow for each other, will grow and grow, especially as you get to see each other again uh, in the flesh in coming months, hopefully. Uh, I'm really encouraged that the family relationship spreads across the globe so that we have relationship and we have responsibility for our brothers and sisters across the world in all kinds of places. We pray for them, we support as we can. I'm personally really grateful that as me and my family head up the mountains, head up the highway, 
that we remain brothers and sisters, even as I go to serve another group of brothers and sisters. I do want to acknowledge that there is something special about being part of a local gathering of God's people. It's like a, a nuclear family within the extended family of God's people. And you, Tegabi Anglican Church, are a special family in more ways than you realize. It's such a privilege uh, to be able to join this family seven years ago, and it's an exceptionally difficult decision to leave because it's family. Leaving family is hard. I want to thank you again for your love for me and my family, your care and support and your prayers and your patience uh, over the years. Really enjoyed serving alongside you, serving you, spending time with you, laughing with you, crying with you, enjoying uh, being a family uh, together. Uh, we love you lots. We're going to miss you lots. We're so glad that we're still family. We can hang out for eternity as well. I really look forward to seeing uh, you again soon, whether we pop down at some point. Uh, and of course, if you go to the mountains, uh, please do come and say hi to us. It's been a great privilege to open God's Word with you today uh, and many times across the years. Uh, and love to pray for you as I commit uh, you to God and thank God for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of being family together. Thank you for our place in your family. Thanks that that place is not down to us, but it's all of grace. It's only by your grace. Father, help us to do the will of the Father, to sit at the feet of Jesus, uh, to live not uh, trying to get into the family, but enjoying our place in it. Father, I pray for this church. I thank you that it is your church. I pray for unity and for love among them as they navigate the coming weeks, as they negotiate a way out of lockdown, as they celebrate Christmas in some way, uh, as they welcome Mike and his family, and as together they face this next season of mission and ministry and life together. We thank you for this. I thank you for this extraordinary group of ordinary people and the bond that we have as brothers and sisters. Father, it's a bond that will change, but it does not break as we move on. Thank you that because of Jesus, we can look forward to friendship and fellowship in the new creation when Jesus returns. May we live life looking forward to that day. And we pray this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.